Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Hey everybody, we're back with a slight detour from our normal class lectures to consider briefly what some of what we've learned this semester means for the constitutional politics of Supreme Court appointments. As you know by now, the nation received the sad news on Friday evening that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. She was 87 years old and she had served on the Supreme Court since 1993 when she was nominated for that position by President Bill Clinton. After a campaign rally in Minnesota, President Trump learned for the first time the news that she had passed away as he was fielding questions from reporters just minutes after the rally. And as he's sitting out there, you can hear his first response as Tiny Dancer plays in the background. Well, I didn't know that. I just, uh, you're telling me now for the first time. She led an amazing life. What else can you say? She was an amazing woman. Whether you agreed or not, she was an amazing woman who led an amazing life. I'm actually sad to hear that. I am sad to hear that. Thank you very much. That brief moment of appreciation and respect quickly gave way to the political reality that there's now a vacant seat on the Supreme Court some 40 days before the next presidential election. A little after 9 a.m. the next morning, then, President Trump took to Twitter and he tags at GOP and writes this. We were put in this position of power and importance to make decisions for the people who so proudly elected us, the most important of which has long been considered to be the selection of United States Supreme Court justices. We have this obligation without delay, exclamation point. Right now, the Republicans control the U.S. Senate and the presidency, and according to Article 2 of the Constitution, the president, quote, shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court. How does the Senate provide its advice and consent for presidential nominations to the court? The Constitution doesn't say, but historically it's come through nomination hearings and a vote by the Senate. Since 1789, presidents have nominated 163 different people for appointments to the Supreme Court, and of those, the Senate has confirmed 126. At times, this has come by a simple voice vote. At other times, it's come by a razor-thin margin. At still other times, the Senate has outright rejected the president's nominations. The Constitution also doesn't tell us much about how the Senate will go about the process. Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution, just after describing how elections are going to take place, says only that each house may determine the rules of its proceedings. And if you go to Senate.gov, you can read the published rules of the Senate, how they're going to proceed and what they've agreed on as a body. Two important Senate rules have to do with cloture and the nuclear option, and both have big implications for judicial nominations. Let's start with cloture. According to Senate rules and longstanding tradition, senators can debate any issue for as long as they want. But that also allows a minority of the Senate to use endless debate as a tactic for preventing something from coming up for an up or down vote by the full Senate. That might be good or bad depending on your perspective, and from Woodrow Wilson's perspective, it was a bad thing. And so in 1917, he urged the Senate to adopt Rule 22, and Rule 22 allows any 16 senators to sign a motion asking for debate to end and for some matter to be brought before the full Senate for a vote. 
The presiding officer of the Senate, after receiving this motion from 16 senators, then simply asks the full body to vote on this question. Is it the sense of the Senate that debate shall be brought to a close? If three-fifths of the senators say yes, then debate ends, and the matter is brought for a vote. Ending debate in this way is called invoking cloture, and in the modern era it takes 60 senators to reach that three-fifths threshold. What this means in practical terms is that for important business in the Senate, it often takes 60 votes. Everything else can be filibustered by a determined minority. So if the issue is important enough, you're going to have to get 60 votes to move forward. Now, the norm historically has been to not use the filibuster for judicial nominees, but that changed during George W. Bush's presidency when Senate Democrats used the filibuster to prevent a final vote in the nomination of Miguel Estrada to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Since that precedent was set with Miguel Estrada then, judicial nominees effectively required 60 Senate votes for confirmation. That was true of Republicans and Democrats until Senator Harry Reid in 2013 took what he called the nuclear option to end the filibuster of President Obama's judicial nominees. Mitch McConnell's done the same for President Trump's judicial nominees, and he's ratcheted up to include nominees to the Supreme Court. So what is the nuclear option? In reality, it has a less interesting title. It's Senate Rule 20. It's a technical rule of order that allows the presiding officer of the Senate to decide any issue by a simple majority vote, despite Rule 22 about cloture. And here's how it works. If someone raises a question of order during debate, the presiding officer gets to decide the question of order without any further debate. Nobody gets to weigh in on it. If someone then appeals the presiding officer's decision about that rule of order, then the presiding officer can decide any other question of order while that appeal is still pending including the question of whether to end debate and bring something to the full Senate for a vote. This is what we call the nuclear option, and it means that if something is important enough to the Senate majority leader, he can bring it up for a vote by the full Senate to end a filibuster, even if there aren't 60 votes in the Senate to invoke cloture. What does all this background then mean for the constitutional politics of Supreme Court appointments? Well, to start, the Senate doesn't have to confirm any presidential nominee. When Justice Scalia died in February 2016, nine months before the presidential election, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell declared that the Senate would not even consider a presidential nomination until after the election. McConnell explained it this way in a co-authored op-ed piece for the Washington Post back in 2016. He wrote with his co-author, Given that we are in the midst of the presidential election process, we believe that the American people should seize the opportunity to weigh in on whom they trust to nominate the next person for a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. And here's what he said on Fox News in 2016. To history, we haven't filled a vacancy created during a presidential election year in 80 years. You'd have to go back to 1888, Grover Cleveland in the White House to find the last time a Senate controlled by the opposite party of the president confirmed a justice in a presidential election year. We're in eerily similar circumstances now, but with one major difference. In 2016, Republicans controlled the Senate, but there was a Democrat in the White House. This fact of divided government is Senator McConnell's stated rationale for treating these two cases differently. And it's actually one that he seemed to allude to in that clip we just listened to when he noted that the last time the Senate confirmed a nominee of a president from the opposing party in election year was during Grover Cleveland's administration. In a statement he released on Twitter just after Ginsburg's passing, McConnell said that in 2016, the American people had just elected a Republican Senate to serve as a check on the president during his last term in office. 
By contrast, he said, the Republican Senate majority expanded in the 2018 midterm elections, signaling, according to McConnell, the people's desire that the Senate work with the president to fulfill his agenda, particularly his outstanding appointments to the federal judiciary, McConnell said. And then he ended with this promise. President Trump's nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. Now, whatever you think of Senator McConnell's consistency or rationale here, he is empowered to go down this road, both by the Constitution and by the Senate's rules. He's playing hardball for sure, and he's taking risks, but he's playing within the rules of the game. And those same rules provide an option to the Democrats that they're now considering should they win the White House, maintain control of the House of Representatives, and gain a majority in the Senate in just over 40 days. That option is court packing. If Trump pushes through a nomination to the court, say a Justice Amy Barrett, who's confirmed before Inauguration Day in January 2021, then the new Senate majority will work with the Democrats in the House to pass a new Judiciary Act that will expand the number of seats on the Supreme Court and immediately create two vacancies. This is at least the plan that's being floated. President Biden, under this scenario, would then fill those two vacancies, and the Democratic Senate majority leader would use Rule 20 to force an up-or-down vote on the nominees. And the Supreme Court would then go back to the same basic ideological balance it had when Ginsburg was on the court, although now it would have 11 members instead of nine. The politics of all of this in the coming weeks will be ugly, both for the country and for the court. It's a political gamble on both sides. It's a high-stakes game, and the rules of that game were put in place a long time ago, in 1787, at the Philadelphia Convention, when the delegates gave the Senate the power to determine the rules of its own proceedings, vested the judicial power of the United States in one Supreme Court, whose judges would serve for life, but the number of those judges would be decided by Congress, and Congress would be empowered to fill in the details of the court's composition and its jurisdiction. And then they gave the judicial appointment power jointly to the president and the Senate. One thing the founders didn't seem to envision or foresee, though, was that American politics would be driven largely by conflict between two major political parties, and that the Supreme Court itself would not be above or beyond that partisan strife. And so as you watch and observe the judicial nomination process in the weeks and months ahead, remember also those constitutional choices that continue to shape and constrain our law and politics today.